Well, good morning, Genesis. My name is Michael. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here and just want to say thanks for joining us this morning. If you're new or newer, thanks for coming to visit. I hope in the moments that you've already been here that you have been encouraged. Uh, I want to share, when I was in college, um, I was a psychology major, and one of the most difficult classes that I ever took in college was a class called Statistics. And I took that class with my roommate, Justin, who was one of my best friends. And when we took the midterm and we got our midterm results back, uh, Justin came and said, hey, man, I got a 33% on the midterm. How did you do? And I looked right at him and I said, man, I got a 34%. And we kind of just laughed at each other for how poorly we had done. But the problem actually wasn't with how poorly we had done on the midterm. But the problem was that I totally lied to my friend Justin. I didn't get a 34% on the exam. I actually got a 32% on the exam. And when Justin asked me how I did, without even thinking about it, 34% is what came out of my mouth, and I totally lied to him. Now, I didn't plan on lying to him. It literally just popped out of my mouth. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I felt like just a so ridiculous for lying to him over 1%. Now, if I'm going to lie, I'm not sure why I didn't lie big and be like, dude, I got an 85%. What is wrong with you? (laughs) And I remember as if this was just yesterday. This was almost 25 years ago that this happened. But I remember as soon as the words, hey, I got a 34% came out of my mouth, I didn't hear the audible voice of God. But as clear as I've heard God speak, he said, no, you didn't. Tell him the truth. Tell him that you got a 32%. And I was like, not going to do that. I'm going to feel like a double idiot here because not only an idiot for lying to my friend, but an idiot for being a bigger idiot than he was in statistics. And I'd love to tell you that this story ends well, that maybe later that day, uh, and by the way, he was my roommate, so I lived with him. Later that day that I went and told Justin, hey, I totally lied to you, I'm sorry, or maybe later that week or at some point in the semester, I went and told Justin that I totally lied to him about our midterm exam. And every time the story would come up, which it came up a lot because people found out how bad we had done, we would always get ragged on for getting such low scores. And every time someone would bring up the story, God would say, tell him the truth. Be honest with him, tell him the truth. And I'm like, can't do it. I'm not going to do it. Now, as I was thinking about that story this past week, uh, the the thought uh, came to me, and I wrote this in my journal, is every step of disobedience you take is a step closer to a hardened heart. Every step of disobedience that we take, whether we think it's a big one or a small one, somewhere in between, every step of disobedience that you take is a step closer to a hardened heart. A hardened heart towards God, towards who He is, and honestly, even a hardened heart towards people. Last week, we looked at a man who took steps of obedience. And with every step of obedience that he took, his knowledge and experience of who God is and what God is like continued to grow and grow. Meaning, as Moses would take steps of obedience, his knowledge of God's character, God's faithfulness, his provision, his compassion, his generosity, his goodness just continue to grow and grow. And as one gets to know God more and more through obedience to God, 
what happens to your heart is it actually begins to reflect the heart of God. But as we're going to see this morning, when one just walks in continued disobedience to God, the impact of disobedience on our lives is absolutely devastating. Now, my aim for our time this morning is not just to walk through all 10 of the plagues that devastated and destroyed the nation of Egypt. Rather, I just want to focus on three of the plagues. Uh, And I want to really hope to understand and answer one question that was asked right before the plagues came. Uh, So the very thing that God told Moses right before the plagues were to come in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, when I raise my powerful hand and bring out, powerful hand through the plagues, and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, if the plagues were about Pharaoh and the Egyptians having knowledge of God, what was the knowledge that God wanted them to have, the knowledge that he wanted Pharaoh to have, the knowledge that he wanted the Egyptians to have? And I think it was just simply this, there's no God as powerful as God. That there is no God who as powerful as Yahweh, as powerful as the God of uh, the Israelites. Now, in Egypt at the time, uh, they had many gods, goddesses, idols, but there was roughly 100 primary deities that the Egyptians worshipped, that the Egyptians just revered, that the Egyptians saw as all-powerful. And the deities, they were all organized around three different categories. They had gods of the water, specifically the Nile. They had gods of the land, and then they had gods of the sky. So with every single plague that befell Egypt, God was making a statement that He is the one true God, the most powerful God, over the water, over the land, and over the sky. So every plague was intended to cement in their minds, both Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that there is no God who is powerful as God, as Yahweh. Now, what's really crucial to understanding these plagues is that this is not just some power play that God is making over the nation of Egypt. Every display of power through each of these plagues is a demonstration of God's judgment. It's a picture of God's judgment on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. So the obvious question is, well, what are they being judged for? Well, Pharaoh, number one, he is being judged for his actions towards the people of God, his cruel, brutality, murderous ways towards the people of God. He's being judged for that. And the second thing is, he's being judged for the steps of obedience that he continued to take of just ignoring God's command on his life. The Egyptian people, they were also falling underneath the judgment of God. And they, number one, they were being judged for their abuses towards the people of God. And number two, for the relentless worship of idols, their continued worship of false gods. Now, I want to caution us as we head into this section of Exodus because it would be really easy for us just to sit back, hear the story, and think to ourselves, you know, I am sure glad that God doesn't judge us anymore like He did then. I'm really glad that God is a God of compassion and a God of just kindness. And I'm glad He's not like that anymore. I'm glad He's more like this today. Our idols might look very different than theirs but let us not be confused that God still judges idolatry. Today, not just back then, but today, God still judges idolatry. Whether it's the idol of money or comfort 
or titles or statuses or relationships or pleasure. The list of our idols could be really longer than this, but my point is this. God still judges our idolatry. Now, God's judgment might not mirror or mimic the plagues that we are going to look at today, but His judgment often reveals itself in allowing us to experience the consequences of the steps of disobedience that we take in our lives. And as we're going to see with Pharaoh, every step of disobedience that we take, the hardening effect that it has on our heart is real. The hardening effect that it has on our lives is real. Consider Pharaoh's final step that he takes before the first plague arrives. It says in Exodus 7:13, Pharaoh's heart however, remained hard. He still refused to listen, just as the Lord had said. Pharaoh just witnessed a miracle. Pharaoh just witnessed firsthand the power of God, and his response to seeing the power of God on full display is he still refused to listen to God, and now he's going to experience and encounter the judgment of God. Starting with the Nile River, every plague that fell upon Egypt fell upon this area of life that they believed would be completely protected by their deities, by their gods and goddesses, by their idols. So plague number one, this is an attack on the very thing that Egypt depended upon for everything. Water for bathing, for cooking, for cleaning, for drinking, for food. They depended on this for commerce, for travel. So to impact the Nile was to impact the very lifeblood of Egypt. This is in Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 14. This is plague number one. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard and he still refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes down to the river Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him there. Be sure to take along the staff that turned into a snake. Then announce to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. Until now, you have refused to listen to him. So this is what the Lord says. I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with the staff in my hand, and the river will turn to blood. The fish in it will die, the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink any water from the Nile. If you can imagine for a moment if all the oil supplies in our country were completely cut off. You can imagine the stock market at the exact same time completely crashed. You can imagine that there was no clean water for us to have everything, all water had been completely contaminated. And if you can imagine that all grocery stores were shut down, there was no food to be had. If you can imagine what that would be like for us in our context, in our world, you'll have a sense of what this would have been like to experience the Nile being impacted like it was. So plague one would not have just humiliated the gods of the Nile, Osiris, Nu, and Hapi, but it would have been incredible to the Egyptians. It would have caused total chaos in the nation of Egypt. Here's a question. If everything in your life that you counted on for life was taken away from you, imagine for a moment, everything that you look to 
just to sustain you, to bring you life, was absolutely taken away from you, would that have gotten your attention? Would God have your attention through something like that? Because here's how Pharaoh responded. Pharaoh's heart, this is Exodus 7, 22 and 3, Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had predicted. Pharaoh returned to his palace and put the whole thing out of his mind. Plague one causes chaos in Egypt, and it's a plague that lasted more than a week. So my question is, how does one put something as big as this completely out of your mind? How do you forget about something like this? The best answer that I can give you is this. We rationalize outcomes in order to justify sinful choices. We rationalize outcomes in our life in order to justify the sinful choices that we ultimately want to do. For Pharaoh, a negative outcome had ended. Thus, he was able to rationalize the outcome. Well, hey, the worst is over. I was able to survive and get through that in order to justify him doing what he wanted to do. I've rationalized the outcome. Now I'll just get back to doing what I ultimately want to do. How do we do that in our culture? How do you and I rationalize outcomes in order to justify the sinful or selfish choices that we want to make? I'll give you two examples. And both of these examples are not only culturally acceptable, but they're culturally encouraged. Number one could be pornography. And pornography comes in all forms, whether it's literally internet pornography, whether it's the films we watch, the TV shows that we stream, uh, the things that we read. In pornography, the message often is, hey, this is actually helping me. This is sprucing up my relationship. This is sprucing up the marriage relationship. We rationalize the outcome in order to justify what we ultimately want to do. This is helping me, and now I feel rationalized in that, so I'm going to justify the decision that I want to make. And just so we're clear, if you really want to trash your marriage relationship, If you want to trash your view and understanding of sexuality, that's exactly what pornography will do. But yet we rationalize it in order to justify the choice that we want to make. Or I think about this example, cohabitation, living together before you get married. We say to ourselves, you know, this is actually saving us a ton of money. We're actually being good stewards by doing this. And we think to ourselves, you know, gosh, this is honestly the best way to prepare ourselves for the marriage relationship. We rationalize the outcome thinking this actually has benefits in order to justify the decision that we ultimately want to make. And again, just so we're clear, plain married does not prepare you for marriage because it undermines God's design for marriage. What we need to realize when we begin to rationalize outcomes in our life in order to justify just sinful steps that we want to take is every step of disobedience you take it is a step closer to having a hardened heart. Pharaoh continued to take steps of disobedience to God and was about to encounter again God's power through God's judgment in plagues two and three. Now, plagues two and three involve what I can only describe as just totally nasty and absolutely frustrating and annoying. This is plague number two in Exodus chapter eight, verse one through four. It's aptly titled the plague of frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, go back to Pharaoh, announce to him, this is what the Lord says. 
Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs across your entire land. The Nile River will swarm with frogs. They will come up out of the river into your palace, even into your bedroom and onto your bed. They will enter the houses of your officials and your people. They will even jump into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Frogs will jump on you, your people, and all of your officials. Now, God would have had me at frogs in my bed. I would have been like, God, you win, I quit, I submit, I surrender, I got frogs in my bed, I'm completely done. Now, what's up with the frogs? Both the Nile and frogs were seen as symbols of fertility. And frogs were so sacred to the Egyptian people, to Pharaoh, that they could not even kill them. They were an object that was just revered and worshipped because the frog was their symbol or sign, the creature that brought life, uh, fertility. So this plague again, it's a picture of God's judgment on Egypt's gods those that, and those that worshipped them. As we read in the story, you'll see the judgment that is coming. In Exodus uh, chapter 8, picking up at verse 8, Then Pharaoh, the frogs came took over the land. In verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he begged, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let the people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses says, you set the time. Tell me when you want me to pray for you, your officials and your people. Then you and your houses will be rid of the frogs. They will remain only in the Nile River. Do it tomorrow, Pharaoh said. All right, Moses replied, it will be as you have said. Then you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you uh, and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile River. So Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's palace. Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that, that he had inflicted on Pharaoh. And the Lord did just what Moses had predicted. The frogs in the houses, the courtyards in the fields, they all died. The Egyptians piled them into great heaps, and a terrible stench filled the land. Now imagine this scene here for a moment. The very thing that the people worshipped and revered as the object that was bringing them life are now dead and rotting away in front of them. Imagine seeing the creature that you revered as life-giving now in piles and piles and piles of just dead frogs everywhere. Again, another picture of God's judgment, another reminder of God's power. Again, personalize this for us. If the very object that you believed to bring you life, whether it was work or whether it was money or status or relationship, the very object you believed to bring you life was not only taken away from you, but it was actually exposed as not life-giving like you had believed or thought, What would be your response? Would that have been enough for you to to turn to the only one who actually brings life? If the very thing was taken away and exposed as not life-giving, would that have been enough for you to turn to, to God, to the only one who can actually bring life? It wasn't, again, enough for Pharaoh. Because in verse 15, the end of this plague, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart 
and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Again, another example of rationalizing the outcome in order to justify the sinful steps that he ultimately wanted to take. Now, if the second plague was just nasty, frogs everywhere, the third plague would have just been simply maddening. This is what's known as the plague of gnats, and this is in Exodus chapter 8, starting at verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and he struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Now, keep in mind, gnat mosquito repellent had not yet been invented. So imagine being swarmed and covered with these tiny little insects known as gnats. Now, some commentators actually say the gnats is better translated as lice. So imagine your body, head to toe, everywhere you see are these little gnats or lice that have taken over everything. Yesterday, when I was out for a run, the place, one of the places where I run by has a marshland. And I'm running by, and I felt like I just ran through a wall of these black little tiny mosquitoes or gnats. And I felt like they were chasing me for the better part of a half mile. But after I got past the marshland, they were gone. And as I was running past and through these little gnats, imagining what it must have been like covered head to toe, and there's nothing I could do about it. Similar to the sixth plague and the ninth plague, plague of boils and the plague of darkness, there is no forewarning given to Pharaoh here. This plague just arrives. It just shows up. But what sets apart this plague from all of the others is that the Pharaoh's magicians, they come to him with a confession. And this is the confession of Pharaoh's magicians. He says in verse 19, this is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. His own people, the men that he would look to for help to get out of this, come to him and say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And I love the imagery that they use. Pharaoh, this is just the finger. It's not even the hand. It's not even the arm. This is just such a small picture of the power of God at work. So for the first time, someone close to Pharaoh recognizes the power of God. Now, if someone that you trusted in your life, someone that you looked to, someone maybe that you respected, they came to you and they said, hey, man, what is happening in your life right now, it's from God. God is trying to get your attention. Please listen. If someone were to come and tell you that this is God's work in your life, He's trying to get your attention, how might you respond? Would you pay attention to what others are telling you, this is so clearly the finger of God, or would you completely ignore it? As we've seen with Pharaoh, every step of disobedience he took, his heart only continued to grow harder and harder. But now for the first time, we're going to see the impact of what a hardened heart actually has on your life. I wrote it down in my journal like this, hardened hearts blind us to seeing God. 
hardened hearts actually have a blinding effect on our lives. What often is so clear to those around us as the finger of God, we can be blind to because our steps of obedience have not only hardened our hearts, but now have blinded us, blinded us towards God. Here's Pharaoh's response, Exodus 8, verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart, it remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had said. Three plagues, three demonstrations of power. Pharaoh continued to take steps of disobedience and completely ignored what God was calling him to do. And with every step that Pharaoh continued to take, his heart grew harder and harder. And now he was just blind to what was obvious to everyone else. This is the work of God. This is the finger of God. This is the power of God. Pay attention to it. But again, every step of disobedience we take, the hardening effect that it has on our lives is real, and it's ultimately devastating. Now, for an entire semester, I ignored what God was telling me to do, to be honest with my friend Justin, and every step of disobedience that I took that semester, my heart only grew harder and harder towards God. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And as I was taking that step of disobedience, it unfortunately led to me taking other steps of disobedience that I can remember taking that semester. As I've been thinking about this from 25 years ago, this is the note I wrote down, our steps reveal our heart. The steps that you take reveal what's ultimately going on in our heart. So what do your steps reveal about your heart towards God today? What do the steps that you're taking reveal to you about what is going on in your heart today towards God? I just want to finish by asking the same question that I actually asked all of us uh, to respond to last week, and the question is this, what step is God calling you to take today? It might be a step of repentance, a step in obedience. For me, I took a step this week of obedience to God to do something I should have done 25 years ago. I reached out to my friend Justin to apologize to, to him for lying to him as something you might seem as I seemed at the time. It was just a stupid statistics test. I've not talked to my friend Justin in 15 years. And when I reached out to him, he thought it was a little weird. <laughs> thought it was a little bit odd that I would remember a statistics test from 25 years ago. But that's the step that God was telling me to take this week. What is the step that God is wanting you to take. Because my fear, my concern is, as we take steps of disobedience, our heart grows harder and harder towards God. And we become blind to what is obvious to everyone else as the work of God, the finger of God. And I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for anyone here. So what is the step of obedience that God is calling you to take? And might you take that step today? And as you walk in steps of obedience, you'll see the transformation in your life, in your heart. Uh, it's not a hardened heart, but a heart that actually begins to reflect the heart of God to those around you.